0: Support for this episode comes from the Diller Teen Tikkun Olam Awards. Do you know a teen leader changing the world? Fifteen recipients of the Diller Teen Tikkun Olam Awards will receive $36,000 each to recognize their community service and leadership. The awards honor young changemakers who embody the value of Tikkun Olam, repairing the world. Nominate a teen today or they can apply directly by January 5th. Learn more at dillerteenawards.org.
1: This is Judaism Unbound, episode 401, Expanding the Jewish Canon. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And today we're revisiting a topic that we discuss occasionally here on Judaism Unbound, which is the Jewish Canon. What constitutes the Jewish Canon? What has constituted the Jewish Canon? What might constitute the Jewish Canon in the future? We're excited to welcome today two folks who are involved with a project focused squarely on questions of canon that's called Expanding the Canon. Expanding the Canon is an initiative from the Washington, D.C.-based Theater J. That's a very interesting Jewish organization in its own right. It is a part of the Edlovich D.C. JCC, the JCC in Washington, D.C., And it is a nationally renowned professional theater that celebrates, explores, and struggles with the complexities and nuances of both the Jewish experience and the universal human condition. In Theater J's most recent project, Expanding the Canon, the theater has commissioned seven racially and ethnically diverse Jewish writers to create new full-length plays— These plays will thematically and visually center diverse Jewish narratives in order to correct and broaden the historically limited portrayals of Jewishness on stages in the United States and around the world. Our guests today are Haley Finn, Theater J's artistic director, and Zachariah Ezer, who is one of the seven playwrights commissioned as part of Expanding the Canon. A few words of introduction for our guest, Haley Finn, Theater J's artistic director, is an accomplished director and producer with over 25 years of experience in professional theater. She previously served as associate artistic director of the Playwright Center in Minneapolis and as co artistic director of Red Eye Theater. Haley Finn has directed nationally and internationally from New York to Denver to Edinburgh, Scotland, and she was an assistant director on the Tony Award-winning production of Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge. Haley Finn received her bachelor's and master's degrees from Brown University. Our second guest, Zachariah Ezer, is a playwright who has written plays including The Freedom Industry, Address the Body, and An Unclear World. His plays have been published by Concord Theatricals, Samuel, French, Smith & Kraus, American Blues Theatre, New World Theatre, and others. Zachariah Ezer is also a dramaturg who has worked with the National Black Theatre and the Workshop Theatre. He's also an essayist and a performer in an alternative rock band called Harper's Landing. Zachariah Ezer received his bachelor's degree from Wesleyan University and his master's degree in fine arts from the University of Texas. Haley Finn, Zechariah Ezer, welcome to Judaism Unbounded, so great to have you.
2: Great to be here, thanks for having us.
1: Well, so this is about expanding the canon and I, I thought it might be interesting just to start with understanding what canon are you expanding and how?
2: We are expanding the canon of Jewish plays by commissioning seven racially and ethnically diverse Jews um, but that—that that is what we're working on here.
1: What, what would you say is already in the canon? I mean, I could think of Fiddler on the Roof.
2: Uh, well, that depends on how you define right, canon and how you define Jewish canon. So you might think of Arthur Miller as part of the canon. Tony Kushner could be part of the canon. When you think about canon, most of the time, it includes a lot of white men. And so what we're trying to do here is expand beyond that to have Jews of color, in particular, in this project. And the reason is that there are just very few stories out there that really show the full expanse of Jewish identity on the stage. It's a limitation that we have currently. And one of the ways to um, combat that is inviting people in and giving them the opportunity and the space and the time and the resources to create those stories.
1: So, Zach, I would like to ask you, but also just uh, to the extent that you can talk about the other playwrights that are in the cohort. Are these people that have been writing Jewish plays already or are these generally people that have been writing plays, but this is their first Jewish play? I'm curious about you, but also in general, what, what are you seeing in the cohort?
3: Sure. Yeah, I think it's a pretty diverse group of people uh, in terms of their interests in both writing and in their interest in writing about Judaism. I think that there are people who have really not written a lot of plays before and are uh, accomplished artists in other mediums. But there are also people who have um, engaged in quite a bit of Jewish playwriting already. For me, though, I think that I often have like maybe a character or two who is Jewish in some of my plays. But I think that this is the first uh well, I've written actually, since the starting of the commission, uh, I just was in uh, grad school and I wrote a play that was sort of like all Jews all the time. But uh, this is my, this is the first one that I've begun that is like specifically like about a Jewish topic and is specifically what I would think of as a Jewish play.
0: Often the the way to go in these conversations is like begin big picture and then distill into small, I want to start with small, like, like what is your particular, I mean, it's not that it's small picture, your production, but like what is your piece of this puzzle before we zoom out to the the rest of the cohort, tell us about your play, Zach.
3: Yeah, great, okay, so my play is about, uh, in 1905 in Louisville, Kentucky, all of the Shabbos goys went on strike. Um, and so it is a strike play about that era, sort of an intersection of a lot of different, like race, gender, religiosity, one of the things that I found interesting in one of my re- in my research is that Jews who had specifically shabboskoy, which is uh, a non Jewish person who does work for a very religious Jewish person on the Sabbath, specifically Jews who had shabboskoy as opposed to full time domestic servants, were usually pretty middle class. Instead of being sort of a like rich bosses versus sort of impoverished workers uh, type of story, it's interesting that this is like kind of a small, pretty honestly impoverished themselves minority of Jews in Louisville at this time who are the management side against striking black Shabisquas because uh historically Shabisquis have been uh young black men are the most common demographic. Thurgood Marshall, Barack Obama, Biggie, they were all uh in their youth. And so that that that's a uh, kind of the tradition of Shabisquis is like black men probably between like fourteen and nineteen.
1: Well, it sounds like something that gets people to uh, very prominent positions later in life.
3: <laughs> maybe so. I mean, and, t- and honestly, not just Blackie, but Elvis did it too. So, like, you no. know, maybe, maybe that is a, a key.
1: Yeah. This, play, this is a true story. This is based on a true story that there really was this strike.
3: Yes. So I originally found the play. uh, The idea for the play was um, I was just up late one night and there's a newspaper clipping from uh, a leftist Jewish newspaper in Chicago that's like this. It talks about the strike. And that is like kind of some of the only information that there is about the strike. There's sort of the only other piece that I was actually able to specifically find was in LA. There was another progressive newspaper that says the strike was still happening two weeks later. But the thing about it is that it was a wildcat strike. So there's no like larger union. It was a strike of children, mostly children and young adults. Also, it was a, a strike of black people against a, a, like a specifically a, a religious minority as opposed to, it was sort of a more informal job. So there's just not a lot of like coverage except in these two Jewish newspapers. And furthermore, in, in Louisville in 1937, a huge flood, I found this out during all the research, a huge flood wiped out uh, all the low-lying areas, which were where a lot of uh, ethnic minorities lived. So there's just not a lot of um, information of the flood wiped most of it out. So I've been doing a ton of like local color research, but it is, this is a real event. Uh, unfortunately, not a lot is really known about it.
0: Jews and Jewish communities, we tell stories about ourselves. And we do so by looking at the past and I'm going to use like a hyperbolic verb. I don't really fully mean it, but just for the purposes of provoking everybody, um, we cherry pick. And I don't say that like with malice. We, we're not lying to ourselves, but every cultural group, we look to the past. We find certain people or groups or stories that are part of our story. We center those and then we decenter others. And I think if you were to talk to most Jews today... Um, especially American Jews and say, okay, Jews and strikes. Which side are the Jews on in strikes? Right? Like, that's a, it's a bizarre question to ask, but I think there's many pe- people tend to be familiar with the general notion that in American Jewish history, Jews have been on the left. I mean, even folks who are not deeply embedded in Jewish institutions, there's this fascination with how Jews seem to almost always in the last half century plus vote for Democratic candidates. And so, when you look even earlier to that, to, you know, labor movements and their history, Jews take a lot of pride in how we've often been the strikers. But I think this story, part of why we haven't maybe heard much about it is that we're not the ones striking. It's specifically those who are in Jewish communities and not Jewish, the Shabboskoys, who are striking against Jews. And that's like, that's an uncomfortable thing for people who want to see themselves in stories of righteous protest, not being protested. So I guess, Zach, I'm curious, like, is that part of what you're interrogating here? Or like, why tell this story now is kind of my question.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I'm the thing I'm thinking really about is the history of black Jewish relations and sort of how it exists sort of on stage, pretty limited, I would say, and a lot of the most famous stories are written either by non black people and by or by non Jews, and very few, if any, are written by people who are black and Jewish. And so uh, it was interesting to me to find sort of uh, a flashpoint uh, of that, especially because Louisville was such a, a, a sort of vibrant community. And there were black people who had like, converted to Judaism. And there were like and Louisville's really and Kentucky's a weird state because it was sort of neutral during the Civil War, which like there was slavery and Jews did own slaves, maybe not even 50 years before this event happened. But also Jewish people fought for the Union. So it is it, like, yeah, the complication of this history is what really interests me. As you're saying, um, Jewish people are used to being maybe more left, but when it comes to specifically that relationship, when it comes to Jewish people and black people, they're a little more depicted on the management side. And so I wanted to complicate both how Jews see themselves, but also perhaps that history a little bit. The strike was always my interest once I found that newspaper clipping. I found it actually before the uh, commissioning program had begun. It had just been something that I'd been sitting on for a while because I'm like, this would be a great play. I just need maybe the right venue and support to be able to, to bring it to life. Uh, I talked to, um, in addition to the folks over at Theater J, some other like Southern Jewish scholars about how specifically in uh, the Louisville community, there was a lot of conversion of Black people to Judaism. Segregation was still very much a thing, but that did not stop interfaith and interrace relationships from happening. So two of my characters actually are Jews of color. Kind of the crux of the drama for, for me uh, that I was interested in pursuing is the whole play takes place on sort of the last night of the strike. And the strike leader is a young man of color who is in the midst of converting to Judaism. And his, th- the completion of his conversion process would be the next morning, in which case he could no longer be the strike leader because he can no longer be a Shabbos because Shabbos can't be Jewish. Um, and so I was very interested in uh, exactly how Jews of color who would be caught in the middle of this. Um, another character I have is... Um, Louisville had uh, this this rabbi uh, named Rabbi Zarchi, who was and it, the a character that's pretty based on him, who was sort of the 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 big deal rabbi of of, of Louisville for maybe 20 30 years. Um, and it takes place in his house, and uh, one of the people who works in his house is a domestic woman who is a black woman who has converted to Judaism many years ago. The idea of um, black Jews was something that was pretty central to me. I'm a pretty leftist person in my bones and in myself, so like I am always with labor. But as I got into more and more of this, uh, like who, who they were exactly striking against, I thought it was just sort of like, oh, some rich Jews who had assimilated. But um, in fact, in Louisville, there were sort of two waves of immigrants. It was a lot of German immigrants who had sort of who did assimilate. And then there were uh, and, and they were sort of some of the first Louisville was on the pretty uh, bleeding edge of the reform movement in Judaism. But there was a second wave who remained Orthodox, who were mostly Polish and Russian, who were actually much closer to my ancestors, who are uh, Polish and Russian, and they were the ones who needed the Shabboskoys and couldn't afford full-time domestic servants. I have pretty a lot of sympathy for both sides of the strike, even if ultimately, right, like always, labor.
0: So Haley, I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the other productions in process that are part of the cohort, and some, I mean, and maybe this blurs together how this cohort even became an idea. Like what what is the origin story of expanding the canon? So I guess maybe that's the order. Maybe we start there and then get to some of the manifestations of it that are coming together now.
2: The formation of the program predated me. And I would say it was one of the elements of Theater J that really excited me a lot because my background is in new plays and new work and particularly around telling stories that haven't been seen on stage before. So this is just right up my alley. The project started with my predecessor, Adam Imavar, who um, formed this program along with the Covenant Foundation, who is very generous supporters of this. The idea behind it was really the fact that there are so few plays written by Jews of color and, and so little in terms of the representation of Jews of color on stage. And as Theater J, which is uh, sitting in the nation's capital and dedicated to Jewish plays and particular Jewish experience, um, it seemed like there was a a big hole that needed to be filled. And so that is how this program came to be. The concept was to have seven playwrights, part of the program that would be there for a three-year period of time and work very closely with Sabrina Sojourner who has been um, like a mentor to the project. But one of the things that she did was create a learning space, a Jewish learning space, because not everyone in this program has had as much exposure to religious Judaism. You know, people are coming from all different backgrounds and all different perspectives. We have Kendall, who's a rabbi, you know, and then we have somebody else who, who is really coming to it from a more secular Jewish perspective. So Sabrina created this fantastic learning space where there were um, scholars, Jewish scholars, Jewish artists who would come and speak with the playwrights. Where we're at right now is that everyone has kind of come up with their idea for their play and they're writing their first drafts. We heard a lot about Zach's piece, which is fascinating. I'm very excited about it. There's some other really wonderful pieces in the mix. Jesse J hoon is really focusing on his experience as a Korean adoptee. There is another piece by MJ Kong who talks a a bit about her experience converting to Judaism. Um, She married someone who is Jewish, raising a Jewish family, what that means, the challenges that she's experienced around being accepted by the community, at times not being accepted by the community. Harley Elias is writing a piece that is focused on um, Vasco da Gama. There are not many stories written about Sephardic Jews either. And so that is that is an element in his story that he's really bringing forward. Kara Olivia Heron, who's written these wonderful children's books, is writing her first play. So there are many people coming from this at all different angles. And that's part of what's very exciting about the program itself.
0: Throughout this, I think we're going to go back and forth, big picture, specific, get back to Zach's play a little bit, because like, I'm so ready to watch it like tomorrow morning. So okay. I, I, I know it's not ready, but like... Um, Zooming out, expanding the canon, we've already alluded a little bit that that's a phrase that is super layered and could mean all sorts of different things, depending on whether we're talking about, like, like what's, what's in between each word, right? Expanding the Jewish canon, expanding the theatrical canon, expanding the theatrical Jewish canon. I kind of want to go to the biggest possible version of that. We have a canon of Jewish canon. I'm saying Jewish and not Judaism, because I think when you say Judaism, people jump to specifically the books that are the canon of the Hebrew Bible. And that's not what I mean. I mean that we have inherited, we roughly defined, a set of stories. Some of those stories are from the Bible. Some of them, like we alluded to earlier, are Fiddler on the Roof, which is not in the Bible. It's much more recent than it that. Is it isn't? Um, right? Yeah. Everybody, yeah, we, I can't believe that tradition is not the first word before Bereshit. But uh, we have stories, and I bring up all of them together because I think all of them together inflect what Judaism, Jewish life is today. And often it's the more recent ones that might actually be more canonical or more influential, at least, in their canonicity. I'm, like, throwing random words around that I'm not sure are words. But, the, like, we have examples from the recent past of non-canonical, quote-unquote, stories that become a kind of canon – Jews the world over hear about them, even non-Jews hear about them, and it inflects how they see what Jewish is. It's not unreasonable to presume that like, okay, we're going to have seven new plays, and what Judaism is in a few decades is going to be different to millions of people on the planet. Like, I figure that's the dream, right? That this will have a kind of Fiddler-esque impact. Fiddler's impact, by the way, has not been all positive. It certainly tells one story with, you know arguable levels of historical accuracy and maybe it's not even trying to be historical. But like I guess all that is to say like what is that canon that we're expanding? On the, on the one hand we could say as you did before Haley like we're exp- we're, we're writing more Jewish plays and we're going to tell stories that haven't been told. I'm kind of curious like might the goal here possibly be to just expand Jewish storytelling way more broadly? So that even when we think about like Bible Talmud stories, Hasidic stories, you know, fill in the blank, the next piece would be expanding the canon productions. Is that kind of the long-term goal? I know it's like dick to say that, but I'm curious if that's part of the angle here.
2: When I think of expanding the canon program, I don't think of it as the next fiddler on the roof, because I think fiddler on the roof is a a commercial project that was well done and great. My dream for this is that these plays happen across the country, across the globe, and they don't have to be on you know, Broadway stages. Maybe they're on Broadway stages, but maybe they're in this great community space or, you know, I hope that this play gets to Louisville and that. Jews and non-Jews get to see this work. And one of the things about expanding the canon that to me is so beautiful and anything about the theater is that we're reflecting the world, right? That is what theater does, reflects the world. And if you don't see yourself up on stage, there's a part of you that's like, well, who else Who else is here? By seeing other Jews of color on stage, I think that can be affirming to Jews of color, but I think it can also be really affirming and eye-opening to Jewish people and non-Jewish people so that people know that Jews look and act and believe and experience life in so many different ways. And to me, that is is what I'm looking for, is is to create a space where the, the richness and the complexity of Jewish identity is seen and recognized.
3: I've always had a pretty interesting relationship, maybe fraught relationship with the idea of canon. Uh, it's always been my belief that being black in America is to be a living apocrypha. But I, when I was in undergrad, I studied under perhaps the theater's greatest Jew of color, uh, Kiara Hudes. She really shifted my notion of canon to be canon. We didn't really do a lot of sort of traditional theatrical canon studies when I worked under her. It really was a lot of you make your own canon, and uh, if anything this program has taught me maybe that instead of expanding the canon being an expansion of one individual uh, canon, it's expanding the notion of canon into being able to create our own canons. I think of these plays, mine, the other six and any uh, other things like this that Theatre J or anyone happens to support are things that, yeah, like mine could maybe go to Louisville and start to be part of like that local canon that would, would be a dream. Uh, maybe Jesse's play becomes uh, really important for uh, adoptees perhaps any of these plays become part of their own canons Canon draws boundaries and borders boundaries and borders are by definition sort of exclusionary and at least rhetorically violent and so for me the expanding of a notion of everyone is allowed to have their own canon everyone's allowed to have the things that like like are important for them is maybe the way that i like to think about it and that what i think this program is doing
2: I think that can historically have created borders. You're in the canon, you're not in the canon. And as it's been, it's been historically white Jewish men. And in the case of theater in this country, it's been historically white Ashkenazi men. You know, we could say we're adding more people to the canon and make it bigger. Or as Zach said, we're creating different canons or maybe we're just taking, we're getting rid of that word altogether.
1: So Zach, you you mentioned being black in America, I think is what you said, uh, is kind of like living Apocrypha. And I, I saw Lex's eyes light up because anytime you mention the word Apocrypha, Lex gets very excited, but it dovetails.
0: Apocrypha with... is my Bible. And I mean that with all the irony. <laughs> no, with totally. All the
1: and, and actually yesterday, it just so happened that I was listening to this podcast that I listened to. It's a podcast from Israel about the Bible. And they were talking about the book of Tobit. I don't really remember why, but the book of Tobit is one of the books in the Apocrypha. And I was captivated. Lex, I think you've told me the story of the book of Tobit in in the past, but I wasn't listening or something. And finally, they they like went through the whole story. And I was like, well, this is a great story. It's a great play that I would really enjoy. So there's something about the fact that that was in the Apocrypha and not the actual Bible. It was interesting that you, you said, Zach, I think that people can all have their own canons. I wonder if that's somewhere where we're going here. You know, like what? Let me, let me put it another way. I, I feel like going to plays is sadly a thing that not that many people do. And similarly, I'd say reading poetry, right, is not a form of book that people tend to read a lot of. Now, there's some people that read a ton of poetry, and there's some people that go to a ton of plays. And I'm wondering, as you think about expanding the canon, whether you see this project, which is expanding the canon of Jewish plays, as part of potentially or already a larger project of expanding the Jewish canon of all kinds of cultural production, or whether you actually think, or both probably, right, that plays have a unique role in culture. And if so, I'd love to understand more deeply what that is.
3: I am a Black Jewish writer, and everything I write will have Black Jewish characters in it, and hopefully will do some of the same work that I'm talking about. But I do think plays are really important. Plays are open and sort of more in general, plays are open for interpretation in a way that like you make a movie and then that's it. That's the movie. If you want to remake the movie, you have to have like millions of dollars and like deal with all the IP and stuff. But plays are designed to be like, all right, we did it here this time. Now we're going to do it here later or we'll do it somewhere else next time. I think that's the reason a theater like even if there are technically less people seeing it than there were, you know, 50 years ago, it's never going to it's never going to go away the lowered sort of barrier to entry uh, to be able to do it. And because all you need is just people and words and the ability to reinterpret each time for what the needs are like some you know there there are beautiful great films out there that are relevant to today as they were when they were made but that's just not the case for most of them and plays even if they aren't necessarily that way if someone sees how they can be relevant to now they can make the production look more like that so i do think that like yeah when thinking about the idea of sort of canon plays are integral to sort of our or maybe instead of the idea of canon sort of the idea of interrogating talking about thinking about our own jewishness plays are very important because i've always thought of my tradition and engagement with uh, jewishness and judaism to be pretty discursive and to be pretty sort of intellectual and i think that like plays really really feed that idea
0: so i did in fact light up when you mentioned that being black in america is comparable to living apocrypha if i got that quote yeah that's yeah, right you yeah, know that, that cool That, to me, gets at what Apocrypha is. We didn't really define it in this episode. We've talked about it in the past. Last year, um, and we'll have this again this year, we had this Apocrypha-fest. We had an event around Hanukkah where we looked at a bunch of stories that are not as well-known to folks. But right now, my virtual background is a picture of this guy, Asmodeus, who is a demon, who plays a key role in the Book of Tobit, who I think is fascinating. And I want to acknowledge that, like, if Tobit were in the canon, If Tobit were part of the biblical canon that I inherited, I don't know if I would be as interested in it. Like, I want to be honest. Like, I've got slivers of hipster in me. I like finding things that are not generally the center of a space. And I I really believe in that impulse the impulse of looking to Apocrypha, of looking to that which is not included. That's actually more important than the content of particular Apocrypha books. Like, I don't care if anybody listening to this knows what Tobit is. I mean, I'd like you to. It's a cool story. But mostly, I want you to be like, huh, there's stories that are a part of Jewish history that I've been told aren't really. I've been told they are sort of past tense Jewish. Some Jews used to care about them, but then we cut them out of our canon. And so now they don't hold the same status anymore. I want everybody to be really skeptical of that thing where we say, you know, we're set. We've got. An exhaustive bunch of books that, that that constitutes a religion. That that's enough. Even if Tobit were added, if all of my apocryphal books were added, we still need to be exercising the muscle of seeking out new stories. Because what we really need to do is not just find like new stories from a few thousand years ago. It's we need to recognize that at any given moment there are new people, new kinds of people, new kinds of communities, new forms of storytelling that need to be added if our Jewish community is going to continue to be vibrant and continue to speak to different kinds of people. And so I guess I'd love to hear, like, might we benefit from thinking of our effort as playwrights or as any other Jewish artists creatively as kind of thinking apocryphally? Because Zach, you, in talking about the story you're telling with the strike in Louisville, that's not a book of the apocrypha. But I think it's the same exercise that somebody might be doing when they're trying to read Tobit or Jubilees that was kept from them, except instead it's trying to read the story from the early 1900s that was kept from them in a sense, or at least not centered.
3: Absolutely. I mean, the thing I'm thinking a lot about with what you're saying is, I don't know if you're familiar with philosopher Mark Fisher, but he has a sort of term and concept that he has called a hauntology, like ontology, but like haunt, it's like a pun. Uh, It's originally does pun. Fisher's whole thing is just sort of like we're we're stuck in capitalism and we're stuck in like a way of thinking. And like what hauntology is is excavating sort of the pre-capitalist mode for different solutions from peoples that were sort of erased and obliterated by culture as it homogenized. And so like he he and he uses that sort of as a metaphor to think about that all the like kind of think about th- think about thought, I guess. And so that's I feel like I'm always trying to engage in hauntology uh, at any given time with whatever I'm doing, I mean, to maybe put it in your terms a little more, yeah, ontology is like the constant search for Apocrypha, not only because it's there, but also because it's sort of useful to our present moment, right? Like as, as a practice of uh, thinking about different kinds of people, but also that those people have ideas and solutions that like we haven't even thought of uh, and are maybe incapable of thinking of because of our adherence to, in this case, canon.
0: So I am moved by a few pieces that came up from both of you, and I'm flashing back to a conversation we had with two folks who edited, compiled a book called The New Jewish Canon, Yehuda Kurtzer and Claire Sufren. And when we spoke with them, we kind of pushed a little because, Zach, what you were talking about with, like, you're skeptical of canon generally. There's a way in which it's inherently boundary creating. I'm really with that. And we talked about, like, is the mission... In that episode, we were talking about, is the mission, like, let's find the new Jewish canon. We weren't telling expansive enough stories, so we need to identify the ones that will be, as a whole, more expansive stories. Or is the mission, instead of expanding the canon, to upend canon? And I took away the the. Upend the idea that there ever is a canon that contains all Jewish stories. And again, I don't think any of the four of us believes that there is like one canon. And I don't think most Jews really do when they think about it. But we, even without meaning to, we've internalized a notion of like, ah, the stories that are Jewish, like they can kind of be found on a certain finite number of pages in a certain finite number of books, Bible, Talmud, and sort of books of Midrash that are marked as official Midrash, official like storytelling. I do think it's kind of more about upending canon, maybe then expanding the canon. That's not to throw shade at your name. I love the name. I want everybody to expand expand canons. But like is upend a little bit of what we're going for here?
2: Upending the canon, um, taking away the borders of the canon. One of the things that canon does is it uplifts, right? It, it, it puts something on a platform. It uplifts. Here's the thing. So I, I think one of the things I want to do is in addition to taking down all those borders of the canon is just to like uplift some stories that we may not have heard of before kind of an active giving more resources giving more visibility putting some energy behind some new stories as well
3: the program is working on maybe two levels in my opinion which is that sort of the way that theater productions work i mean not To be maybe simplistic to the point of uh, almost being incorrect, but uh, there's kind of new works and revivals, right? And as far as like the revivals go, revivals have to have sort of in the industry a certain level of canonicity in order to be like considered for general audiences, right? Like you can maybe revive a kind of play that's non-canon for a specific purpose, but for the most part, right, revivals are, you know, I would say maybe the same 200-ish plays I have a good friend who I work with as a director who tries to uh who's spent a career trying to elevate other plays into sort of that can level so they can be revived more often. But one of the things I think theater, one of the levels, the like the sort of industry level that Expanding canon I think is working on is like, oh hey, Jewish theater, which is like mostly like done through the JCCs, you can't just revive the same nine plays over and over again. And no shade to it, it's a great play. You can't do Fires in the Mirror every year um, for your uh, you know, non-white play. So let's talk about what other options we can provide you, what we can give you. Like I think it's uh, none of us have the same Canon or much like me, any idea of Canon. Canon is maybe perhaps useful in certain spaces of respectability as a bit of a cudgel. And if you can get your, your thing as, as oh, we're canon too. Where you get you get in there. But also when it comes to like serious study, when it comes to like the way that we actually make the art, I'm in agreement with you, and I think uh, Peter J. and sounds like Haley too is really in this place of like we are expanding, like I said, the notion of canon and perhaps making canon less of a thing that in in our intellectual life have such prominence. I want to
0: get from this broad question of of canon generally back to the voices and stories of Jews of color that are at the core of this contribution to broadening canon, expanding the canon, however we wordsmith it, Um, we've got a lot of racism in Jewish communities. Like, we haven't said that directly this episode. I think it's worth saying directly. And it's not just about creating a better version of our stories, although that is a really important endeavor that I am invested in. It's about, like, there are actual people today being micro and macro-aggressed in Jewish spaces by largely white Jewish communities. And if we're creating sort of a set of strategies to upend that, to use upend again, some of them are about best practices and how we act differently in synagogues. Some of them are, I mean, we could go through all sorts of practical things and institution by institution kinds of policies. The other piece is related to art and storytelling and creating those central narratives of a wide variety of Jews so that people who are non-white in Jewish spaces are not seen as some like, oh, wow, that's so interesting. No, we have this famous play about a strike in Louisville, Kentucky that has reached millions of people by, you know, 2040, we hope one day. Um, I, I would love that to happen. Me too. Um, that's like now a known thing. And so nobody's surprised anymore to learn about folks who are whether it's the product of interracial and interfaith relationships or just Jews of color who both their parents are do like whatever it is, that's no longer surprising. And I think like there is a way in which I'm interested in talking about like the strategic piece of, like this is this is not just about like creating cool things. We have a world, Jewish, we have a broader world and a Jewish-specific universe where people are discriminated against. And I'm curious the ways in which this is part of an effort. That's not just about creating theatrical productions, but includes creating theatrical productions to combat that and change that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. For me, the mission of theater is to create stories, to have representation on stage, to make people think, to make people feel, to become compassionate, better citizens of the world. I and mean, maybe that's very, very idealistic, but that is my vision and my hope and my dream and the why the reason why I do what I do. And why, you know, I love working with brilliant playwrights who are coming up with those stories. It's very important to have this, you know, representation of Jews of color, of stories that challenge us, that make us think in new ways, that also reflect the evolving demographic and nature of Judaism in this country, because it is changing, because we are changing. That should be reflected Theater in itself is a way of making people more aware, more compassionate, and also, I hope, a way of challenging racism and racial bias.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm just gonna like also sort of say, it. like, yeah, I'm interested in engaging in doing propaganda. I want to do propaganda. That's I, I call myself <laughs> quite often in my theatrical practice a propagandist. I'm thinking about the episode uh, that you guys did with Kendall. But we were talking about the image of Moses, the uh, how it moves from Charlton Heston and older folks to people around my age who are the prince of Egypt, right? Uh, and about how it is Moses is having a non-white face and like maybe being a little more historically accurate to what someone in Egypt might have looked like is like a thing that we can do. We can like shift people's minds because that's the thing they have in their head. So I'm definitely interested in doing that sort of work in my work. But in addition to sort of like uh, kind of racial solidarity, I'm also very interested in, as the philosopher Joy James talks about, ideological solidarity, which is that I'm interested in talking about, for me at least, you know, Jews of color, specifically Black Jews, and them engaging in sort of things that are values that are held by both communities and most of those being like leftist values, values of community, values of charity, values of solidarity. And I sometimes think about um, how, I mean, two of the most famous entertainers in the world right now are black jews uh drake and doja cat and they don't really talk about it much drake does a little bit there's a part of me that's like and should we call on them to talk about that more but i'm I, i'm thinking about an article i read not long ago about the director janixa bravo but she, she she's a black jew and she talks about how essentially she's like i i really wanted to be about it but then when i would go into spaces like it was not a place that like i like jew spaces that wasn't the place i was welcome the thing that I think as Black artists uh, who are Jewish, a thing that like all Black artists maybe encounter is that at the beginning of our careers, the people who want to take us in are Black theaters, Black production companies, etc. And oftentimes when you engage with the other parts of your identity, those people don't necessarily want to have anything to do with you. Theater J is like my first encounter with the Jewish theater. It's the first time I've been able to like be able to like be welcomed these kind of programs, I think are the thing, like the thing propagandists need more than anything, right. Is like funding, right. They just have to be able to like hang out and like, you know, make, (laughs) make the posters and make the, make the plays. So I think that like, yeah, I'm very engaged in being a propagandist. And I think that like a place like you do, it's like, yeah, here's some money to like, make your like strange leftist propaganda thing is uh, really important to it. And that's for me, how we shift the Overton window a little bit at a time.
1: What I hear you saying to a certain extent is like, Jews out there, you want to get excited when Drake or Doja Cat or Dovey Diggs or whoever appears as a Jew of color who's famous. You have to be welcoming to all Jews of color. If you're just going to be self-serving about it, you know, just because only then will people who become famous like feel part of it. Now, of course, they shouldn't be doing it for self-serving reasons. They should be doing it because these are Jews. And I guess I'm wondering whether this is a problem that propaganda will be sufficient to address.
3: Sure, I think, I think that's fair. And I think that like propaganda is effective when in-person examples are not readily at hand, right? And so I do think that like if in your particular Jewish community, it just is white, because there aren't any Jews of color around, then I think then propaganda does the work, like media representation does the thing of like, oh, when I think about Jewish people, sure, I think about all the, all like I think about filler on the roof and I think about like everything that I've thought of in white Jewry that I've been thinking about my whole life, but if also so readily at hand, is David Biggs, for instance, right, then it expands maybe my notion of what it is. But I do think in places where, I mean, in places where there are Jews of color around you, no, propaganda is not as important as being kind and decent to those people and incorporating them into your communities and having them there every day um, so that, like, your empathy is generated that way, um, for sure. Yeah, the place of propaganda is, I mean, for me, I grew up in a kind of small town in Texas where there were not a lot of Jewish families. I mean, in my high school, it it was just me and Sean Wagner for me, propaganda was, like, super useful, because, like, if I'd had Daveed Diggs, you know, growing up, or a play that was – or a movie that was very, like, engaged in, oh, yeah, there are Jews of color, that would have been a thing that made more comprehensible to the people around me. Um, and so that's maybe what I'm thinking with propaganda. But absolutely, no, in places – I mean, like, I live in New York now, right? There are – um Plenty of non-white Jews here, and the thing that like should be done is that like the Jews who hold power and influence here in New York should absolutely be like, hey, Jews of color, we know you exist, we're going to include you in stuff, and we want you around. So I think a many-pronged attack, and as an artist, I feel maybe most professionally and technically able to handle the propaganda piece.
0: Is part of the goal that in 10 years, 20 years, however long, the JCCs of the world— The places that are producing Jewish cultural work, they are centering stories of Jews of color, not just when it's like the one in 10 moment on the calendar where we're supposed to do that, but rather as just the general flow of how we operate.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that the whole notion of who's Jewish and who isn't Jewish, I mean, that's changing, right? The Jewish experience itself in this country is changing yes there should be representation of all people and it shouldn't be any sort of obligation or slot for this or slot for that it should just be this is another great Jewish story and this is another great Jewish play that we want to have on the stage
3: I want to say two things I want to say one that's like a direct answer to the question that one it's just a weird thing I want to say it's very related to what you just said um but the, the, the answer to the question is yeah and I think that I mean, personally, I think Theater J has like a pretty smart thing going, which is that like they give each year sort of Jewish playwriting awards in addition to like, and then there's also this, uh, the commissioning program, right? I think those things need to always sort of exist next to each other, right? Which is that like I, as a playwright, for instance, right, am el- as, as a Black Jewish playwright could be like, oh, yes, I'm somebody who could do expanding the canon because I'm a Jew of color, but also I'm still like eligible to like engage with sort of the, the mainstream Jewish theater. And so I think that like the mission of the Jewish theater going forward, if it actually wants to include and envelop Jews of color into sort of their, the mainstream and the way that you're talking about is I think to have both of those types of things continuing to have these uh, like dedicated avenues as sort of a compensatory measure for their uh, Jews of college exclusion historically, but also like not just essentially like and over here is where we have the, the Jews of color, uh, the Jews of color engaging in, um, all, in sort of more mainstream colorblind Jewish um, theater awards, productions, et cetera, right? And if I think those two things work together over, over the course of, you know, we're talking 2040, 40, years from now, et cetera, right? That's how we get to, I think, the place that we would maybe all be happier with. And so the weird thing I wanted to say is perhaps you've heard of the movie Shiva Baby, uh, a 2020 movie where Rachel Sennett uh, plays a a Jewish woman engaged in some part of the Jewish greeting process, uh, and there are um, queer sub-themes. Have you heard of the movie Tahara? A 2020 movie where Rachel Sennett plays a Jewish woman engaged in some part of the uh, Jewish grieving process, uh, and there are queer subthemes. But it's directed by a black woman, and it stars a black woman, and uh, was not as big a movie. You know, uh, it's just weird that those both came out, and it's interesting to see this. And it's just sort of like that's maybe the other side of the coin is also then when these kind of sort of stories do sort of get made in that way, they don't get the same kind of maybe support.
2: And that's why the commissioning program is essential, is because it's giving. Artists the money, the resources, the platform to create their work, um, which will allow it to get to production. But if we just assume this work is going to show up, that's not really showing like how we want to invest our time and our money. And, and I think that that's really important that we're commissioning artists to create these stories so that they can get to this stage.
0: I I do want to arc towards closing. And as we do so, I mean, I'm kind of just curious open-ended you know our listeners are out there listening and hopefully they'll be staying poised at their computers on whatever email list to learn when these theatrical productions become real and they can go and support them in their communities and attend and whatever but like what would you like them you know closing thesis statement like what's your hope for what they take away at the end of this episode like if they're gonna be shifted from this past 45 minutes to an hour what's your closing call to action for them as they go on to whatever's next?
2: To invest in writers and artists is really essential because those people are the ones that can really reflect these stories and bring them forward to communities across the country. And so for me, it's about supporting artists, about supporting stories. It's about um, thinking expansively and about doing that with not just and the large platforms of Broadway and seeing those big plays, but doing that in your local community, doing that wherever you are.
3: I'm, I'm hoping to maybe instill a sort of self-reflexiveness in people when they think about canon, because there is maybe an idea of a canon uh, that you don't necessarily have to engage with, but there are things that are important to you. And that's what your canon is. And I I would ask you to take a look at what is in your canon and who is in your canon. And if it all looks the same, to do some notion of expanding. And I think that's the work that we do uh, and that we've been doing and that everyone can do together. And then uh, when we all have maybe a more expansive notion of canon, maybe the larger big capital C canon can sort of dissolve a little bit.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a fantastic conversation.
2: Thank
3: you. Super great to be here. Thank you for having us.
0: And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again with us in the future. As we close, just want to remind folks that we deeply, deeply appreciate when you're in touch with us and there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. You can head to our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram handles, all those are at Judaism Unbound. You can email us at dan at judaismumbound.com or lex at com. You can head to our website, judaismunbound.com, where you can find show notes for this episode and lots of other good resources. And of course, we're also super grateful if you are able to support us financially with either a monthly recurring donation or just with a one-time gift. You can do that at judaismunbound.com slash donate. And the last thing I'll say is that support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.